Everybody's got the same issues. Everybody's worried about people's ability to turn up at work. Obesity, type 2 diabetes, mental health, MSK, those big plays are there. We've just listened. Every time we have a conversation, we are people coming into a sector which has had to live with these problems forever, which has been politicized to death. Health has been politicized to death. The one thing COVID forced us to do in the depths of it was part the politics and think about the problem and just solve it. Hi, I'm Belded Mankus. Welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. The podcast that shifts the conversation about purpose and strategy from what organizations should do to what business leaders are doing and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I'll be joined by Stuart McLennan, Circular One Health's Executive Chair and CEO. He shares with us their vision of making entire communities healthier and the key part family-based empowerment plays in that. He outlines the linkages between energy, food, and health needed to create a sustainable society. He also shares how his agricultural background prepared him for a CEO leadership role. Stuart, welcome to The Purposeful Strategist. You're the executive chair and CEO at Circular One Health. Could you just tell us a bit about yourself and what Circular One Health does? Sure. So my background is ag tech, not human health. And I grew up in that agricultural world and had an amazing trip, which I'll never forget, to China around 2010, uh, to Beijing, looking at the challenges of the rapidly growing population and the need for some sustainability in our modeling and our strategy and our economy. And as a genetics company, which was part of the time, Genus, with this brilliant workshop, and it was really insightful and pretty game-changing for me personally. Came back from that, and then uh, about 2013, I left that business to start to build my own business with a real simple purpose, is to make a difference in everything that I do. That was anchored around the principles of circular economy, so I get very excited about the whole idea of doing good is doing good business and having a moral compass to things, and focused a lot around renewable energy, sustainable food production, and aspects like that. That brought me in touch with one of my fellow directors and founders of Circular One Health, Chris Stanley, about four or five years ago, where we worked on a project using the lateral flow assay to improve the sustainability of animal-based protein production in dairy. We worked on that project, great fun. Uh, COVID came along. Chris was an expert in diagnostics and was using the lamp chemistry in human TB screening around the world and had been for over 10 years and wanted to bring that chemistry to life as a solution to rapid, accurate and affordable testing for COVID. And I think what we both settled in on very quickly was that this is not a small problem, it's going to be a big one. This is a problem that governments need some support with. We can't just expect government to deal with it. And being sort of of that mindset of wanting to help make a difference, we set up Circular One Health, which was using that same ethos of circular economy, ethical, sustainable, do the right thing. We're not a particularly big company. We've peaked out at nearly 300 people. We're back at about 130 or something at the moment. Our first set of published accounts were for about 17 months. I think we did 36 million turnover and about six and a bit million EBITDA. This year, we'll be half that for revenue and we'll lose money this year because we're transitioning. We've taken the big profit from COVID to transition into this phase. And if you look forward, we're a business that revenues will sit somewhere in that 15 million a year and grow and we'll make cash next year. We'll probably clear a couple of million of cash positive. 
which is great. You know, you can build on that. And we started off and we built a COVID screening program for typically defense and energy clients, critical industry businesses that can't afford to stop. And what we realized very early in that journey was those organizations, yes, COVID's a concern, but actually it's the underlying health of our society that's the problem. That's the big concern. Um, actually, we've got to address that challenge. Um, that's been the stimulus for us. So Circular One Health is essentially linking diagnostic services, clinical support services, and service at its heart to see how can we play our part helping business support its workforce and families around improving health outcomes. Because you know we're, we're learning as we speak right now, the whole challenge that we see in our economy is how do you get a growth cycle when you've got a full labor market and we need people and that needs healthy people. So Circular One Health is very much born out of what COVID taught us of where the challenges are and how we then bring that to life in supporting the wider mandate around human health. Not trying to boil the ocean, but be part of the solution. Mm -hmm. Sounds like an incredible journey. And that's sort of the state of the world right about now. You know, kind of animal health, food production, lateral flow, COVID, and then into what sounds like, and I'm sure we're going to explore a bit further, a much broader sort of employee health-related wellness proposition. Mm, yeah. Um, before we kind of get into all of that, if you could describe what Circular One Health's purpose is, what would you say it was? Our purpose is to be part of the solution. If we're going to turn the dial on the sustainable world, and if you take that in the, the aspect of human health, and Circular One as a business, we have three strategies, okay? We, we look at energy, food, and health. Those are the three pathways we look at as an organization. And right now, we're very invested in health because of where the world is, okay? Post-pandemic and the need for change. So it's play our part. And play our part means that we bring a very clean lens to the problem, and we listen, and we listen, listen, listen. And what we hear time and time again is, we need to do things differently. And our job is to think, okay, what is different and how does it help? But it's all about play our part, make a difference. And that's not trying to save the world. That's not trying to be the great panacea. It's saying, what are the problems and how can we solve them? So one example of that is when we started, as Chris did, with using the lamp chemistry from human TB into COVID, we found a really fast test and a really accurate test. And then what we did is something that nobody else did when you swabbed somebody and tested them with the lamp chemistry, the same buffer, we would rerun it with the PCR chemistry to confirm the result, okay? So you didn't need to re-swab the person. So if somebody came up positive in lamp, we take that buffer and rerun it through PCR and confirm the positive. But we also did 20% QC for a long time. So we were able to go back to our clients and say, your false negative rate is under 1%, which is really great because that's, as a business, you want to know that we're finding the problems, but we're not sending people home they don't need to. And that was an example of doing things differently. What we listened to was the need of business to have people at work. Just as relevant as the need of keeping the virus at bay is making sure you keep productivity up. So using a two chemistry approach and taking a very open book approach and working with UKHSA and with government and with clients and saying, well, let's share this philosophy. And we were able to share papers that were statistically relevant at 100,000 tests, showing that actually this joint approach, which nobody else was doing, that gave you this internal concordance, it was just a different way of doing things. And that's really been the ethos is, how can we help by maybe looking at the problem through a fresh lens? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and you've mentioned the, this lamp technology a couple of times. Mm. Is that the same as what's in any lateral flow test, or is it something very different? No, it's, it's more akin to PCR. I'm not going to pretend I'm the scientist here, but the best way I can describe it is lamp and PCR essentially do the same thing. 
in my language, PCR is the VHS, LAMP was the Betamax. Did a great job, but never quite got there, right, if that makes sense. What the guys were doing for 10 years was getting all the people who were suspected of human TB, get a sputum sample, and they could get a result fast enough to hang on to that person so if it was positive, they can get antibiotics. PCR takes three, three and a half hours. This is done in whatever, 30, 40 minutes, or maybe 20, 30 minutes, depending. You can keep somebody's attention for 20, 30 minutes, but not three hours. It's that ethos of the quick turnaround. And in business, time is money, obviously. You've articulated a strategy around energy, food, and health, and said you're mostly focusing on health. How did you come up with that strategy? Mechanically, was it you went into a room, you wrote it down on a piece of paper, it took six months, and it required lots of consultants? How did you get at that? The energy and food was easy, okay, because I had an understanding of both of those personally and had a passion for both of them because they're intertwined in the sense that if you go back 100 years, farmers produced energy to feed horses, plough land to manage things. So they, they naturally produced the two things side by side every day. And actually, if you then fast forward, we're going to have to use land to produce energy again. Okay, and that's that's the interconnection and use the environment around us constructively. And if we have a rethink of sustainable food production, around a non-subsidized economy, so you take the subsidy structure out of the way and think about commercial food production, you will find that you want to produce energy crops and food crops side by side. You'll want to use land for alternative means. You'll want to think about water-based systems working, produce food and energy. The interconnection is great. And agriculture is such an innovative economy. It has to live with mother nature every year. It has to live with environmental cycles and economic cycles with much more diversity than most other sectors. So you've got an incredibly capable skill set in agriculture across the world to diversify. And so that connectivity in food and energy always existed to me and was entirely logical. The missing link was when I stumbled into this with Chris's support is what we put in our mouths and from what we grow affects how we live our lives. You know, our gut health is a massive part of how we physically function as human beings and how our brain function works. So the interconnectivity between the three is actually about a sustainable planet and a sustainable society. And you can ask people to invest in any one of those three with real integrity because you're not betting on the next big trick. You're saying, we have to heat people's homes effectively and affordably. We have to put food in people's mouths that's of good quality effectively and affordably and locally. And if we do those two things well, we'll actually reduce the burden on our health side. And then health goes from something that in our country with the NHS is about how to patch up and fix to something that's actually saying, no, if we think more holistically about the food we produce, plant and animal-based, and how we take it in as in our bodies, we'll change our health relationship with ourselves and with society. So the interconnectivity is actually the human in some way. We're seeing right here, right now, do I heat or eat? And that's an economic issue. And we've got to think about sustainable production of energy at affordable prices, which means we're not being hijacked by a crisis relating to war or, or environment that affects energy or food. We've almost got to do a reset back to post-war, where in you know the UK, we, we, we had a real rethink about how we use land to produce food and energy. And we've got to do it again. And, and so I think we, we need innovation in those three spaces. And because they're interconnected around the human, as a very simple person, I get excited about that because I think that we need it. It links in with all the technologies, but it's anchored around our survival on this planet. I think I get that. I get excited by that myself. But equally, it almost sounds from what you've been saying, that Circular One Health is, is sort of an advocacy group, a, a campaigning group. Is, is that what you do? 
if I saw you working with clients, what kind of clients are you working with? Who are your customers? What are they paying you for? They pay us to deliver services. And those services are about actually putting health programs in place that support their businesses. It's, it's definitely not an advocacy group. I would describe it as pragmatic delivery. Listen to the problem and then come up with a solution that delivers. So our job is to listen and deliver. So could you give me an example of a client? Maybe you can't name who they are, but a client, what was their problem and what did you come up with? What are you actually doing for them? So if you look at our traditional key defense and energy sectors, we use the UK, but in all parts of the world, we did a lot of like nuclear power stations and key defense sites are coastal because you need to be near water for what they're doing. If you look at a lot of our coastal communities, you have huge social and health inequalities in those communities through modern history. Well, through history, actually, to some extent. So when you have a requirement to develop and supply the country with either the next generation weapon system or the next generation energy system, you need highly skilled people and you need them available and you need to be planning their availability for decades, if not centuries ahead. Okay. Because these programs, you know, if you think about nuclear power station, you've got a build phase, a life cycle phase, and then you've got a decommissioning phase, which is huge. So you need skills available for a very long time. So you need healthy communities to deliver those programs. And what we're working with now is organizations around a program which is actually about the health of the workforce, but also a partnership program. You need to support the family. Because if you take somebody through a health screen and they go home and say, right, actually, do you know what? I need to stop eating this. I need to do more exercise, yada, yada, yada. And if their family unit has been ingrained in a lifestyle, they might still sit down to the same takeaway meal that we always did. But if the whole family become invested, you've got the chance of affecting a behavior change. So the model we are working on with these organizations is an employee health program, but also a community program. These same organizations are quite often funded through government programs. And those government programs require you to demonstrate social value in your community. And a major opportunity in social value generation here is actually investing in health outcomes in the community. Today, it's about putting screening programs to try and address where the problems are in conjunction with the existing public health infrastructure. But much more importantly is actually how we affect behavior in the future. We put in place screening programs, everybody in the workforce goes through an annual health screen, all employees, all parts of the supply chain, and that picks up issues. And the vast majority of those issues are not clinical, they're lifestyle. That's when it gets exciting. And if you do the same exercise with some of the people in the community at the same time and they get the family unit engaged, what you're talking about is how you use your local economy and your need to produce something really important for our country as a stimulus to actually make health something that is being always seen as the job of the government and the job of the NHS in the UK to know this is actually about taking self-responsibility as part of supporting our local economy. Because health outcomes are absolutely connected with the strength and resilience of our economy. Mental health in our economy is a major concern for the next decade post-COVID. And actually, mental health has got so much to do with the way we live our lives. It's to do with gut health. It's to do with you know trauma legacy. It's to do with lots of other factors. But actually, if we can address early the factors at play and look at how you can affect that again through lifestyle, behavior, diet, nutrition, exercise, activity, social prescribing, all of those wonderful things. And it's not going to happen quickly, but you work towards that family-based empowerment for change. Mm-hmm. So that's a really bold, big, exciting vision and program. But at a more practical level, where's your revenue come from? Who's paying you to do this? Because somebody must be. Yeah, yeah. If you look at a sector where 
you have to deliver an energy program or a defense program, okay? Those organizations, they pay for those services because if you put your workforce through a health screen program and that's sensibly priced, then that's a lot cheaper than the cost of long-term absence or the missing of a milestone or delivery program. So there's there's three buckets, if I describe it. There's, there's, well, there's four, really. There's the corporate program, which we work on today. So that's paid by businesses to screen their workforce today, okay? And then some of those organizations are saying, because of the way they're funded with the government, we need to build community partnership programs at the same time. So we set those up. That's a different funding stream. That's almost like a charitable program. We're currently setting the first one of those up right now. And our operation, that will actually operate as a community interest company. It's a not-for-profit type vehicle, okay? That allows us to attract ESG money from local employers. It allows us to attract local authority funding because we can actually support local authority health surveillance work, for example. But it becomes a partnership with the community. So that gives your anchor employer what they're spending inside their business. There's a repetition of that going in the community as a partnership. Between those two units are the families of the employees. That's the holy grail. That's the one that will take some time to develop. So if I look at our revenue model, we have a corporate revenue model. We have a CIC kind of cost plus model or base cost model. And then we have a family revenue model. That's still in development, but we know that the workforce program, the families are wanting the same thing. So, the, so that's the, sort of the three main pillars. And the fourth pillar is also the fact that we have this massive machine called the NHS, which with its partnership with local authorities has to deliver community health checks. So people over 40, over 50, depending on your conditions, get access to an annual health check. Well, from the work that we've seen, you're only looking at 20% of uptake of that at the moment. And that's partly because everything's overstretched. And it's partly because we've not really, I think, digitized healthcare sufficiently. So we look at that and say, how can we accelerate the digitization of that piece? Because actually, if more people can go through an annual health screen, then we will start like picking up the sort of main cardiovascular type disease implications that are the big problems that land at the GP door earlier. It feels terribly holistic and idealistic and boil the ocean. It isn't. It's actually very pragmatically saying, if we help solve a problem over here in corporate, let's make sure that learning is then available over here to help the wider government program, because the faster we can develop that, the faster we get more intel. Yeah. So if we call all that four-stage thing you went through, your strategy, how'd you come up with that? Was that Stuart kind of knowing this is what we have to do? Was it you and Chris and maybe some others talking about it? How'd you get to that? By working with people and listening to people and our whole management team working on that. A small group of corporates in the sector we talk about, they can't press stop. They can't press pause. You can't stop the development of a nuclear program in defense and energy. It just, it has to continue. So when you don't have the luxury of stopping or pausing, you have to make sure you can do something. The community program is easy. Again, same organizations saying we need to demonstrate social value delivery. So the social value act that was taken through parliament has actually been really embraced and and the whole ESG model starts to fit within that. So that's pillar one and pillar three, if I call it that. Pillar two, the family, we've looked at that with real interest. We are not a B to C company, okay? Our model is very different. What we are saying is because of the contracts we've got with our corporate clients, they're saying these health programs must not become a burden to the NHS. It must work with. So we've worked very hard in partnering with the local GP network and the trusts so that the health screen that we do, they're engaged with. We're using their model basically. Part of that journey of building that relationship with the GPs, we're then dealing with, for example, the UKHSA and organizations like that, who are then saying, okay, we need to scrutinize your model, okay? So as part of that, they then tell us about their problems. 
So you hear, okay, well, we're, we're way behind on the public sector health screen. Okay, so it's every conversation we try and listen and understand what's our part in this. As you can imagine, this journey produces data. But there's going to be a lot of learning over the next coming years about, okay, how do we change their behavior? How do we encourage people to do things differently? How do we form habit change? As we get into that space, then you start to become part of saying, well, actually, you know, gamification. You know, we've seen how technology has been used through social media to steer people down different paths. And I'm sort of saying, how can we use data and gamification as a result of this to support improving people's outcomes by going through habit change cycles? Hmm. Kind of the more you talk about it, the more excited I get. But I kind of want to look down in the, you know, in, in the engine room, in the plumbing. It sounds like you, Chris, maybe a, a small group of people started somewhere. I don't know whether it was back in the depths of COVID or maybe even before then, or maybe just in the last couple of months, but you somehow came together and constructed this four pillar model. How long did that take? We've been working in this program since the start of COVID. So April 2020, we started working together. And we've been working in this model all the way through. When you talk to an organization about keeping COVID out of their organization, they're worried about COVID, but their bigger concern is if the health outcomes of the workforce are not good enough, then the productivity of the business is impacted through long-term absence, through people leaving, et cetera, productivity. What's in the workforce is also replicated in the community. So if you're a large employer, you need to think about your community. If you're a small employer, you can't really affect it. Everybody's got the same issues. Everybody's worried about people's ability to turn up at work. Obesity, type 2 diabetes, mental health, MSK, those big plays are there. We've just listened. Every time we have a conversation, we're people coming into a sector which has had to live with these problems forever, which has been politicized to death. Health has been politicized to death. The one thing COVID forced us to do in the depths of it was part of the politics and think about the problem and just solve it. And we've tried to keep that mantra of pragmatically what can be done and what should be done. And that's what we focused on. Right. So you've continued to polish, refine, have new insights, see a new opportunity for the strategy, sort of in almost constant evolution. I mean, is that a... Correct, 100%. And, you know, as you've been going along that journey, what would you say surprised you most? Probably a number of things. So I think one of the things that I was really, really nervous of when I started this journey was the fear of trying to work with this massive machine called public health. Okay. I was really concerned about that because I was very cognizant of the fact that we're a small bunch of people who are trying to help. No more than that. And that can be very annoying to big organizations because they're going, go away. We get hit with this every day. And what you've got to do is you've got to be respectful and humble and make sure you don't try and over-solutionize and listen. What I found was by being respectful and humble and listening, we got airtime. It took time, but we got airtime. As we developed and did things, we got more airtime and more senior people. So that was the first thing. Work hard and trying to be respectful and humble. People will tell you what you can potentially do to help and also what not to do, which is really important. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is I've been absolutely amazed at how many clever people there are there doing amazing things, but in splendid isolation. And a big, big part of this for me has been that actually it's collaboration. So a lot of what we do is we don't try and do it all on our own. We listen and evolve and bring solutions to the table. And that creates amazing relationships with really clever people. I think the third thing for me was, again, when we were in the depths of the pandemic, okay, people did things faster with more ambition and less fear of failure. 
And that's how we made traction as a country. We made amazing traction. And we've almost lost that with the fear of failure. But I think the current political and economic situation we're in, which is going to demand us to bring that back to the table, is encouraging in a strange way because we're going into a period of time where it really is eat or heat in too many homes. And I'm just going, we have to think, and forgive me, I'm going to jump across, we have to think about affordable, sustainable energy now. We have to. It's not a nice to have. We, we, we shouldn't be having a discussion whether we want turbines at the top of that hill or not. We should have them. If that's the solution, we should have them. The pragmatism of need that COVID presented, we, we're trying to replicate that now and again just to encourage pace. Mm-hmm. What's been the most difficult part of this journey over the last few years? I think the most difficult part personally has been that I'm the driver for our business and people always come to you and say, how do you solve it? And quite often you don't know. You're solving as you go. Particularly when you're in the middle of something fast-paced, you don't always have all the rig and structure, particularly as a very young business. So I think you, you end up having to work out who you can rely on. And I think that at times becomes quite challenging. But what comes out of that is when you go through a really aggressive growth cycle and a reset cycle as we've done, you end up seeing what amazing talent you've got in your team. It's almost a Churchillian thing. If you take people through that level of adversity, you see what you get. So I'm asking some very clever, qualified people to come in the ride. And, you know, there's a lot of trust involved in that. How, if at all, have you changed as a person through all this? I think if you ask people closest to me, being brutally honest, they'd probably say I'm a bit more irritable than I was before because I've got less headspace than I've had ever because it's very consuming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But personally, I feel incredibly humbled. I really do. Agriculture is just one of the most fantastic economies to grow up in because when the weather doesn't work for you, you have to find a solution. When the markets go against you, you have to find a solution. It's not negotiable because those animals keep growing, those crops keep growing or try to grow. You can't just say, I'm going to stop that for six months because the market stopped. So you have to just run with it and be totally pragmatic. And coming into the human health world, bringing that sort of pragmatic approach, I've upset a few people, but I've built some good friends, or we have. I personally feel incredibly humbled and blessed to be given the opportunity but if you ask those nearest and dearest to me, they'd probably say he's become a bit more grumpy, a bit less tall, and a bit less time. That's pretty honest. Um, what what advice would you give to a business leader who's you know themselves wrestling with their organization's purpose and how to connect it to their strategy? I think honesty with yourself and honesty with your team and your clients. You know, we've tried every step of our journey to be totally open book in everything we've ever done. I don't know how to do anything other than be open book, okay? And, and that means that when you're a high trust person, transparent person, and that's what I try to be with everybody, at times you spook people. If you know what you're good at, if you're the creator, if you're the leader, have some really strong people around you in the delivery. If you're high in delivery, get some creators in. It's that balance of both because you've got to keep looking over the hill. You've got to keep knowing where you're going. And you've got to take everybody with you. That ain't easy, as we all know. There's plenty of times that's incredibly challenging. But whatever your dominant style is, have plenty of counter in that in your team. Because if you were to ask any of my team, they would say, you know, I'm a very strong character because I'm so passionate about this. And some people feel quite intimidated when they want to say no, they don't know how to. But that's where you need to get that high trust. And as you empower people to be that, you will work out the ones who will say, no, you're wrong. And you've got to listen to them, no matter whether you like it or not. Just know your strength, be that, and bring around you the counter to it. And then you get that balance, I believe. Yeah, sounds like great advice. I suspect for some people, very difficult to take, but great advice nevertheless. But I, but, but I think it's important because, you know, there has probably never been a more important time now in the whole world to be in business, right? 
because you need to learn to navigate with a much broader set of skills than you ever have done. So I think people who have a real sense of purpose coming into business today, that really helps because when the landscape's a bit uncertain, that sense of purpose gets you through. When you need to rely on a manual or a business model to navigate your business, then that's tough. And that's why you've got to have people with a real purpose in your business because then you set your own path. You know, so a lot of the stuff we've developed in, in the human health space, we're going to start and transfer that into sustainable protein production because basically putting in a health screen program is essentially putting a bunch of measuring points together, getting a risk score and using that risk score to make better management decisions. It's totally transferable. And so if you have a sense of purpose, you will find that's also transferable. By being driven to solve problems, you create yourself a mandate and an opportunity and solutions, and that's repeatable. Yeah. Um, what haven't I asked you about that you wish I had? What would you like to touch on that we haven't covered yet? What are the big mistakes you've made? Because obviously when you're going at that pace, you make lots of mistakes, don't you? Happy to hear about a few mistakes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the biggest mistake I've made, we've made, well, I suppose I've driven it, is it's a mistake, but it was the only way to do it. When you're building something at speed by necessity, and particularly in something that's new, you've got two choices. You either buy in top drawer talent and build it slowly, or you build talent. They both cost the same. One costs you a lot more in getting hold of people and salaries. The other one costs you more in mistakes. And we went down the second route, partly because there just wasn't access because everybody was in the same space. You just couldn't get people. You had to, we had to build a lot of We had some amazing people. We had to build a lot of it as we went, a lot of young people. And I was all about trying to create an empowerment culture. So we had about 10 people around a table every week to make decisions. And that was fine in the very early days. And then it got to a point where decision-making got slow because as people start to form an understanding opinion, you know, and actually I probably should have formed a smaller senior team quicker to make some of the decisions. Sometimes you just got to make a decision, you're going to do it, and then let them go and work out the how. So I think I've probably over-empowered, and in some cases that's resulted in burning people a bit too fast. You know, they've got overcooked with the pressure. In some cases, we've got some decisions wrong, commercially and operationally. If we'd reset the clock now, there's probably a couple of positions we'd have filled differently a year and a half ago, and we might have avoided some of the, the bear traps we set ourselves, but we are where we are, and it's part of the learning. Very good. Well, listen, Stuart, I really appreciate both the exciting vision you've been sharing, but also the warts and all of making something like that happen. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Purposeful Strategist. Please email any questions or suggestions to belden at mancus.com. In addition to being available on our website, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed this episode, we release a new episode weekly. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks again, and join us soon for the next episode of The Purposeful Strategist. <laughs>